I'm Dean Murdoch, and this is Amazing Places. Welcome to another episode of Amazing Places. You know, I got invited to participate in a really cool launch event this week for a brand new group that, uh, well, I won't give it away just yet, but we'll just say it was about cycling advocacy. And it's meant that this group has a, a new name, a new brand, and uh, well, we're going to have a chance to chat all about that today with my guests. Uh, so I'll just bring them in right now for a, a discussion. Meredith James is the co-chair of the new group, Capital Bike. Hi, Meredith. Hey, Dean. How's it going? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having us on the show today. Hey, I'm delighted you could be here. I'm excited for our conversation. And Corey Berger is the Policy and Infrastructure Chair of Capital Bike. Hello, Corey. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks very much, Dean. It's great to be here. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Capital Bike. We, we all got to attend uh, an announcement event this week. Um, we had a, some media show up. We got to do a promo video. I, I got to cycle around town uh, with a gigantic cargo bike that's branded Capital Bike, uh, showing off all the great cycling infrastructure around the Capital Region. And I even got to say a few words as a guy who has, you know, who's put in zero work here other than pedaling the bike. Uh, it was my great pleasure to get a chance to introduce you both and uh, and talk about this new group. So uh, why don't we let folks in on the secret? Uh, what is Capital Bike? So I guess I'll dive in there. Uh, so Capital Bike is the merger of the Greater Victoria Cycling Coalition and the Greater Victoria Bike to Work Society. So. It's bringing back together uh, two groups that uh, came up, sort of split apart a little bit in, in the mid nineties um, to sort of separate out advocacy from celebration and education. Um, and it's been an exciting last, uh, you know, we formally merged actually last fall um, and our, no, sorry, fall of 2019. Uh, and then, you know, we had to deal with a little COVID issue um as most of the rest of the world did so we're a little delayed in getting our new name out there but it's exciting to see it launch yeah and just to add what Corey said so what is what's capital bike it's the continuation of those both of those founding societies so we're going to keep doing that great work around education and celebration that was uh, led by both organizations and also tie in that advocacy that gvcc did such a great job on on for so many years so uh, this means you're dropping the acronyms. Uh, it's going to be a lot easier for people to, to get their minds around the concept, Capital Bike. Um, why, why did this happen? Why, why the merger between the two groups? Oh, a lot of different reasons. I mean, it was, you know, when, we, when I joined both of the boards in 2016, there was a real clear interest on both boards um, to, 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 you know, look to the future and see what, it, what that looked like. And there was, you know, there was a lot of great reflection on, you know, all the powerful things that we've done, both groups have done over the years, but also that we were kind of a little bit siloed and, and, and stagnant. And, you know, our names were, you know, in the case of Bike to Work, Greater Victoria Bike to Work Society, our name literally didn't even reflect what we did anymore because so much of our work was education. Um, and, you know, and we expanded beyond bike to work to, to, you know, to bike to school. So it was like, okay, we're kind of, we're kind of hamstrung here. Um, and then on the GVCC side, it was like, well, we separated our advocacy all those years ago. And, um, and then we sort of got back into the celebration side and we were actually doing a little bit of education stuff with very young kids. So it was, it was very clear that there was, as the organizations grew and as biking grew in the region, we were starting to bump into each other a little bit more. And it was, and so the discussion was, why are we two organizations? Um, you know, I think, you know, one of our current board members said it best when they, when they joined the board, they, they said, I wasn't even aware there was a bike to work society. So from a public perspective, you know, having two societies in the separation wasn't even needed anymore because people didn't even realize they existed to a certain extent. So Meredith, why, why was this important? Why did the groups need to, to come together? I think there's an opportunity there for all these different aspects. I mean, you're more efficient if you can work together is a big one. And 
whatever work we're doing, each each feeds into the other. You know, you educate people on how to how to ride safely, and then those people are more comfortable coming out to celebration stations. And then they might also become more aware of where there are pinch points in their neighborhood, places where it feels unsafe or where there's a lack of connection from a safe cycling route to the next one. And then they want to get involved in advocacy. So each of those things feeds into the other in a really natural way. And so we wanted to bring all of it under one roof so we can build on that synergy and build upwards and outwards. I think we also looked at models that they use in other cities like Cycle Toronto and Toronto and Hub in Vancouver, where they host all of these different activities under one umbrella and have done so very successfully. So we wanted to learn from that success in other cities. We were quite happy to, Hub actually came over um, in, uh, would have been, it would have been somewhere in 2018. And um, their current at the time interim executive director uh, and one of their board members and you know the board members from the GVCC and the then GVBWS and we we just talked about Hub and their success and and you know and those kinds of things and it was really useful to hear from them about their experiences marrying advocacy with with celebration and you know at the very beginning of this process it was you know before we even got to the members to ask can we formally merge it was good for the boards to hear about what other places, how other places had, 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 you know, it is a somewhat challenging thing. Advocacy is about um, sometimes pushing politicians and staff to places where they're not 100% comfortable going yet. Um, and, you know, education celebration is often about celebrating and educating where politicians and staff are already at and, and where the large, maybe the larger community is. So there's, there's, there are some dynamic tensions in there in, in figuring out how you, how you marry the two. So I think you describe one of the things I was curious about is is the relevance. So there's so much that you've talked about in terms of uh, advocacy and celebration and, and uh, really being um, the single point to, to uh, highlight cycling in the capital region, which kind of brings me to the question, which may be obvious to, to anyone who's listening. I think we probably have a lot of cyclists who listen to the podcasts, including the host. Um, why is this important? Why do you do the work that you do? That's a good, great question. Yeah, for me, I got involved in, in cycling advocacy when I actually burnt out on climate change work. You know, it was the Harper era. It just felt like we were losing campaign after campaign. And I wanted to do something where I could have a really tangible impact. And every person that you put on a bicycle, getting them out of a car is a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. So that's where I got started. But where I stay is because of the community. I, I love the cycling community. I love the feeling of running into a friend on my bike. I love group rides here in Victoria. That's how I actually got involved with uh, with the, I guess, GVCC on a group ride pre-COVID was I was wearing a Cycle Toronto t-shirt and Ed Pullman said, where did you get that t-shirt? And then he found out that I was the former chair of uh, the Cycle Toronto board. And that kind of that organic connection and exploration, it's just a beautiful thing that I I hope that Capital Bike can introduce more people to that feeling. It's meant to be um, contagious, right? Even though we're obviously not advocating for <laughs> contagion right now. Um, we're in an actual contagious environment, yeah. Yeah. No, no. And I, I think I was talking this over with my my husband and because he's we talk a lot about messaging and what's going to work and how do we spread ideas in a way that's accessible and wants me to make people feel excited or they want to get involved and I don't know if the climate change messaging around cycling is really that effective anymore but I or if it ever was I don't know but I, I do think that the community building aspect is effective because especially right now we're all a little starved for connection and the idea that you can join a group and go on a group ride when things are safe again and meet people, explore neighborhoods, get those secret tips about what's great. Like, where's the best ice cream? Where can I get cupcakes? Um, you know, it's really interesting that you, you say that because uh, I was, I had a chance to interview Lisa Helps, the mayor of Victoria back in the fall. And she said something similar about climate change that, that, 
for her, the framing, even though that is a benefit and it's certainly a major focus of why active transportation infrastructure is, is has been a focus for the city of Victoria, that her framing has always been about the convenience, the, the joy, the, the experience that's brought to the individual and the groups that, that get to really um, take advantage of this safe infrastructure, that they can do something that gives them a new freedom. And that that's always been sort of her focus, which to me kind of, it, it's very postmodern, right? Like we've kind of shifted beyond the thinking of this is good for the planet and we're going to explain it in those terms and rather that's the benefit or that's an outcome. But the reason we're doing it is because it's good for community and it's good for individuals. And, and I think that's the thing that's so much more accessible for folks that, you know, of course they have concerns about greenhouse gas emissions. Of course they want to take action to, to mitigate the impacts of, of climate change. But the thing that they're gonna, they're gonna think about first and foremost is the joy that it's gonna bring to their own lives and the, the, the benefit of, of safety that it provides when they're out there maybe with their kids. Like that's one of the things for me that's been most significant is protected bike lanes means that I can relax a little bit when I'm out cycling with, with my kids because I know that you know, they're, they're protected against a, a vehicle uh, running into them, which is as you know, that's always on your mind when you're out there riding as an individual, but particularly when you've got uh, uh, young ones that you're cycling with. Yeah, the thing I'd add to that too is that so much of the discussion around like the transition to net zero emissions or what is a post-carbon future seems to focus on what we have to give up. And this is a conversation where it's something that you're gonna gain. You're gonna gain time with your kids. I was talking about on the ENN rail trail, I can hear parents and their kids singing together in the cargo bikes. And that's, I don't know, I don't know if that's something that happens in a car, but it sure seems to happen on a cargo bike a lot. That is it's really interesting cool. from an advocacy perspective, because you know, we're always figuring out what's the message that's gonna get the most people to support something. And, you know, definitely the family, the aspect of, of you know, riding with your kids. I mean, it was, it was a few years ago when the city was just approving what is now built the Wharf and Humboldt lanes. It was amazing to me. Um, that was really the first time we saw this large group of parents emailing council saying, hey, I've ridden on Pandora with my kids. I want to ride elsewhere now. Um, and we certainly saw that with the speed limit review as well. Um, the interesting thing about climate change messaging from our perspective is, you know, when I started in 2016, we actually sort of, uh, we didn't really distance ourselves, but we didn't necessarily use climate change messaging at the time because it wasn't, uh, you know, to your point, Meredith, it wasn't all that effective in engaging people and people were kind of burnt out on it. And I think more recently in the last couple of years, we've gone back and we're actually adding a lot of that language back into our advocacy now because, what I'm seeing is, is there's a growing realization from a larger group of people that this is a big problem. And it, you know, there's, you know, if that's a motivator because the person doesn't have a kid or they do have a kid and they care about their, like, it's an additional motivator. So it's something that we, that we use. And it's, you know, we're also finding that we're, I'm using it a lot in language when we're, um, when we're working with other groups, people like the Better Transit Alliance and Walk On and, and, you know, that we're, it's important that the larger, you know, cycling is awesome and amazing and fun and great for families and all that, but the larger messaging, especially to the province, really needs to be, you know, hey, you've committed to doing something here. You know, you're not meeting your targets. Want, yeah, you know, and the budget that came out most recently was a, you know, yes, they added more money for biking, but they also added more money to build new highways. So it's like, <laughs> so our climate messaging is really now actually about highways than necessarily the climate impact of biking direct, mm -hmm. um, if that makes any sense. Another thing we, that comes up with cycling that I'm aware of it, but I don't know if we talk about it so much is the, the social justice or the equity side of cycling. Way back when I was involved in a bike share project in Edmonton that we had intended to market to students. So it was in a very, very early version of bike share where people would have a code to a lockbox and then they could take out a key that matched a bicycle. And 
we thought it would be students who used this, but it, it wasn't. It was people who had, um, it, they were under underemployed and working in areas where bike theft was incredibly high. So they couldn't afford to buy a bicycle themselves. And if they did, they were always worried it would be stolen. So we filled this transportation need for them that we didn't even know that that need existed. So I, I think that that's, that's part of this that I try to remember is that it's not just families and kids and people who can afford e-bikes who ride. It's, um, it's also people who are really dependent on bikes because it's the lowest cost, most flexible option that can get them to places that transit doesn't go or that they can't, the transit won't get them there at the time where they need to be there for their, for their work. And it's, it's interesting in the region, you know, we, equity, especially in other places has become a huge part. We don't talk a lot about it in the region, but it's absolutely true here too. I mean, the, there's a study being done right now on the, on the Victoria bike lanes. And what they find is that although people who ride at least once a year rises with income, probably because of access to bikes, if you look at it by people who ride regularly, the two highest groups are the highest income and the lowest income group. And, you know, that's what we see elsewhere as well. Um, and so it's important that we recognize, and that's why, you know, when we try and focus on our, on where do we advocate for, you know, those, that lowest income group, a lot of those people are utilitarian riders going to places that are quite frankly, usually dangerous, because that's usually where we stick our most dangerous roads is in the poorest parts of the, which in Victoria is actually downtown. I mean, the, the interesting thing is Victoria is a weird anomaly when it comes to um, income. Our lowest income areas are not in the Parkland suburbs. They're actually in the closer to downtown areas. Um, so that's part of the reason why, from an equity perspective, focusing on downtown actually makes sense in Victoria. It doesn't make sense in other places which have a large number of high income people. Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and just speaking to the equity piece, we're engaged right now in a review of our programs and how we engage on road safety to address those equity, diversity, and inclusion aspects to, to, to see where are the places where we can be more effective and update our programs and how we run things and how we engage to make sure that we are being that the ally that we want to be because there's always always room for improvement. So it, it reminds me that um, and in a previous podcast discussion with with Corey and Ray Stratzma, we talked a lot about the progress that has happened over the course of the last well, several decades. Um, Corey, you, you used an expression that it was the overnight success that was two decades in the making, I think, or something along those Four lines. Decades making, Four decades in the making. Four decades in the making. And and so it, you know, it is remarkable the amount of infrastructure improvements that have occurred over the course of, of really the the last decade, but especially in the last five years. Um, that, that it's just you know, the proliferation of these protected bike lanes in the downtown in particular, but I think outside of it as well, we're seeing more of it. I live in Saanich, we're seeing a lot more of that going in in Saanich as well. Um, obviously, there's a lot to celebrate about the work that has taken place on part of the GVCC and, and the Bike to Work Society. Thinking ahead about what Capital Bike is going to be advocating for, um, where does this position you? I mean, you, you obviously don't want to rest on your laurels. There's been a, a huge amount of work that's been accomplished, but where does that leave you now as you, you look ahead to the next couple of decades? Well, there's a couple of pieces that, you know, over the next couple of decades need to be worked on. The first one is, you know, the city has a plan to build to the end of 2022, and then there isn't really anything beyond that. So, um, there needs to be looking, you know, what's the city going to do in 2020 after the 2023 to 2026. Um, you know, and then outside the city, there's lots of work to do. Esquimalt, Central Saanich, and North Saanich are all in the middle of drafting active transportation plans right now. Um, and, you know, we provided input on both the Central Saanich and the North Saanich plan. We were, we were pretty critical about both because they really aren't moving the needle up there in terms of moving to AAA, and that's quite important. You know, we've been pushing Saanich as well. We've been saying, hey, you know, you, you're building stuff, but you're, you're almost there. You're building buffered bike lanes. Well, let's put some bollards in there and make that, you know, all agent abilities. You know, in Saanich, that pivot, most recently, they, you know, they're looking at McKenzie, Cloverdale, and uh, some work on Lockside. So it's like that pivot is happening. 
Um, so it's it's about broadening our reach. One of the nice things that Capital Bike offers up is, is it does broaden our reach beyond um, beyond Victoria. I mean, a few years ago, when we did a member survey, the, one of the questions was, why didn't you renew? And one of the answers was, well, you didn't do anything on the peninsula. Um, so it's like, okay, well, let's fix that problem. Um, and that's where our local committee structure is really starting to come in, where we have a, a Squamalt local committee that's already meeting actively. You know, we they are, they're the ones that really got Squamalt to do an active transportation plan. That group of citizens has really been pushing hard on staff and council to be like, say, hey, you know, you need to honor your commitments here. Um, you know, we were able to keep Squamalt's wanted to remove the budget for the lamps and bike lane for this year. And, and you know, 80 people sent emails to council saying, no, 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 you can't do that, um, which is huge. And that's because of that local committee. So we like to replicate that success, you know, up the peninsula with the regional trails group. We have a parking group because we know parking and bike theft is a sort of a, is a big challenge in, <laughs> in the region. Um, you know, one survey I read from elsewhere says that a third of people who get their bike stolen never replace it. So you can't you can't move the needle on biking if you're you know a thousand bikes a year are getting stolen and three hundred people every year are getting off their bikes and not getting back on again. That's a big problem. Um, so, but it's a hugely you know it's a hugely challenging and multifaceted issue. It's not just there. It, it's a lot harder to do but to fix bike steps than it is to say build a bike lane, for example. Um, and then from an ad perspective, you know, back to the discussion about EDI, how do we make sure that when we're advocating, we're, we're doing the best possible thing for, for as many people and especially for those equity groups? Um, you know, I think a lot about it. I, my day job is a data analyst, so I get to see a lot of the back end data. I happen to work on the CRD's household travel study. Um, although this is, this, my opinions are my own and not my, my employers. Um, so it's something that, uh, you know, we have to be super cognizant of, and I'm really excited that the EDI work is happening because it really, I mean, I don't have any kids. Um, I am definitely not a person of color. I definitely don't experience what other people experience. I'm a cisgendered man. I, you know, I, <laughs> I don't, I don't experience what a lot of other people have experienced when it comes to, to using our roads. Um, and so, you know, I absolutely need their perspectives um, so that I can, I can guide you know, I can use my privilege to help um, where I can. There has been a major uptake in cycling. Um, well, I, I think just generally, but particularly during the pandemic. Uh, and so just thinking about the folks that the, the new group represents, how does your view shift I mean, there, there was a time when cycling was viewed as being uh, a fairly um, niche uh, activity that people in, in the neighborhoods and communities would have enjoyed. And that's clearly no longer the case. I mean, we, we talked yesterday about cargo bikes, e-bikes, e-cargo bikes, uh, and the proliferation of different mobility devices that are emerging um, that are enabling cycling as an option for uh, entirely different groups of people who maybe wouldn't have been comfortable getting on two wheels before uh, or however many wheels are, are coming on these cycles. Um, what does that mean for, for Capital Bike? Who, who are you thinking about when you're doing advocacy? Mm. Yeah, I think that that's part of what was behind the merger is creating that big tent cycling advocacy group that can speak to all of that huge range. Um, we've got the you know, education pieces for kids as young as six. Uh, and then, but I mean, it's also for experienced riders or we had, we had a physiotherapist on to help prevent uh, one of our webcast. We had a physiotherapist on one of our webcasts about how to prevent cycling injury, which could potentially be relevant to those, those older riders. And I think, I think that the e-bike, regular bike, is going to be an interesting conversation, especially if as e-bikes get faster. Um, I know when sometimes e-bikes pass me pretty close <laughs> and pretty fast. Uh, so I think that cycling etiquette as we have more kinds of users on the bike lanes is also going to be something that we, we can talk about. Uh, but that's why it's important to have an organization that brings those people together so we can have that conversation as friends, I guess, as opposed to uh, 
having different groups speaking for different people. Yeah. I think, I mean, the, the interesting thing is one of the, one of the, one of the things that gets thrown against biking is, is the, is these numbers, the, these small numbers that apparently if you go and look at, you know, census journey to work, which stats can collects, you know, it says, oh, you know, 10% of the city of Victoria rides their bike to work on a regular basis. Well, uh, you know, and if you look at the region as a whole, you know, it's 5%. And, you know, if you look at the kilometers, it's down to like two kilometers of all percentage travel. So it's, you know, those seem like tiny numbers, but the, the challenge is that what's behind that is that half the region rides at least once a year. I mean, that's from survey data. And I think that because that survey, that data is done by somebody other than, you know, CRD and that, that was the same research that looked at, um, looked at who rides from an uh, income perspective. It's like that, that gets forgot um, that there's lots of people who don't ride regularly. There's a whole spectrum of riding. There's every day down to once a year. And in that spectrum, people fall all over the place. And there's lots of people who ride, you know, a couple of times a year only in certain places. I don't, you know, see lots of friends who, you know, would ride, drive up to the flight path around the airport and ride with their kids around there before the bike lanes are downtown. So it's like, you know, they were going to the place to bike because that was the only place they could take their kids on a 10 kilometer protected loop. So clearly we need something like that in our neighborhoods as well so that people can, so, and, you know, I think what we've seen in the last few years, especially in the last year, you know, you talk about the boom of people biking. We've also seen that from responses to our advocacy in the last year is that we've seen this massive surge of interest that, um, you know, and it's building is producing this virtuous circle of, you know, the city, the city building the downtown protected bike lane network has really put pressure on Saanich and Esquimalt in Oak Bay. Um, you know, I was chatting with someone last night who's an advocate here, um, you know, and they're like, they're pretty clear that they're going to be pushing the Squimal pretty hard for the active transportation plan because they're like, I feel safe riding downtown with my kids. I don't currently feel safe in a Squimal, you know. Um, and same with Oak Bay. We've seen a lot of people pushing like, hey, I can, you know, once Richardson is finished and Fort is finished, you at the Oak Bay border, there's going to be on Hultane, there'll be three really nice bikeways. They'll come right to the border and end. Um, and it's going to put a lot of pressure on council to actually finally get up and do something. <laughs> um, and it's going to be like that border between Alberta and Saskatchewan. Yeah. When you hit, when you hit the nice, the end of the nice highway, and then it's like, <laughs> I, 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 drove a few, I drove a number of years ago when I was a salesperson out of Texas and into Oklahoma. And it was hilarious because the Texas road was about 5 million miles wide. And then Oklahoma and beautifully paved and you drive in the border and there's like this line and the road got literally narrow and bumpy. And it's, you know, I, I don't want to, Oak Bay roads are terrible. So, you know, maybe that's not the best analogy, but it certainly is like the, the place that spent the money has the nice stuff. And then you go across the border and it's, yeah. For the record, I'm from Saskatchewan. So again, it comes from a place, <laughs> of, comes from a place of love. It's not necessarily uh, intended to be a, a slander to Oak Bay to call them the, the Saskatchewan of Victoria. You know? uh, and I grew up in Oak Bay. I ran for council there twice. <laughs> I, you know, I lived there for a lot of years. I mean, the only reason we, my wife and I don't live there right now is because the housing crisis means we basically couldn't afford anywhere else. Um, you know, if we could afford, we definitely move back there. Um, I love Oak Bay. It's a great place to be. Um, love the village butcher. Um, really, really hoping that we get a butcher in the Esquimalt town, town center. Uh, the, you know, um, but like little things like that. I mean, the village butcher from our old place on, on we I lived on Richardson was bikeable distance. Now it's a little harder to get to something like, you know, we go to house up and, but little amenities like that are super important. So it's, you know, from an active perspective, one of the other things we're looking at right now is, is talking about development. What's our role in, in making sure that the built environment beyond the sidewalk essentially is good? Um, because it's a challenging thing. There's a lot of really strong, as you saw with the um, with your podcast, and I know Matt Dell and um, Jeremy Caradona with their Langford podcasts, you know, housing is even some ways even more controversial than bike lanes. Um, so 
I, I think you're right. You've got um, you've got housing, parking, bike lanes. I think are kind of <laughs> oh, yeah. the, the three things that keep showing up. At least if you read the Times column, us that that's I, what that's you're going to hear that's about. That's what people. That's what struck me when I when I ran for council was was you know because I attended three years of council meetings in between my two runs. Every council meeting, pretty much, and it's. I never recorded it, but I'd be staggered. Uh, I, my guess would be something like 75 or 80% of the comments to council were some, some either parking or trees. Um, and yeah. it's probably still that way today when yeah. it comes to So it, it makes me wonder, like, you know, I think we probably all travel in very similar circles where, you know, we, we have a lot of friends who, who cycle, who, who think similarly to us about the importance of, of having safe infrastructure for folks. But every once in a while, you drift outside of that bubble and you run into someone who makes a comment about, you know, the spandex heroes and the, the, they've got this kind of image of what a cyclist is. And it strikes me that that's kind of synonymous with the person who really gets infuriated with the creation of bike lanes and the impact that that has on, on their, really their vehicle lane, the, the travel that they're accustomed to in a motor vehicle. Even though we know there's been such a shift in, in the demographic of people who are getting on a bike and getting around, do you think that that there's a brand problem for cyclists? Do you think that we need to find a way to kind of change people's conception about what this is really all about and who this infrastructure is actually serving? Meredith, I'll let you take a run at that one. Yeah, I, I think that's that's true. Um, there's, there's, some, there's elements of truth in that, and it, but it, it also ties back into what we're trying to market Capital Bike as being, that we are the place for anyone who wants to ride a ride a bicycle, and anyone can ride a bicycle. That it's it's not reserved for certain people, and that that will again, and that in turn in turn helps us with with the branding problem of of cyclists being perceived a certain way, because we can remind, hopefully, the broader public that anyone anyone can be a cyclist. Yeah, some of it is that brand problem is pretty universal um mm -hmm. you know one of the great things about the internet is the internet lets you see the successes of other places and the challenges that other places are running into um even across language barriers i mean twitter's got an auto translate feature so i follow a number of german advocates and it's staggering how similar their challenges are to ours um and you know it, it also means we we also get to unfortunately share the tragedies of others you know when um the, the bicyclist was killed a couple of uh, weeks ago um, who tweeted out just before, you know, I went through this dangerous intersection and then he was killed. Like, so it's like, well, 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 you know, and that struck a real nerve amongst the bike advocates across the world, really, of like, you know, we're now seeing that everyone is in the same boat from an advocacy perspective and we all have this challenge. And I think, so to a certain extent, you know, from a pragmatic perspective, I'm like, okay, well, if everyone's facing it, then you know we'll see what other people are doing and, and we'll emulate that i mean we also we do work we you know one of the things i do when i ride my bicycles i ride in my regular clothes um but it's, it's also been a shift in the gvcc's language and now capital bike language I and mean, it was i found you know one of our great successes 10 years ago we were there yesterday was the the johnson street bridge we were able to really influence that project and get you know a pretty good project built um that really closed a really key gap that's between the regional trail network and what is now the downtown protected life network. And without the John Street Bridge, that gap would still exist, right? So that, that project is a huge enabler. But one of the language pieces we used in 2010 and 2009 when we, we did that, and you know, this is prior to my time, was you know, come out, wear your cycling jacket to council. Um, and it's it was just kind of interesting to, to reflect on that, like, okay. You know, to a certain extent, we have in the past embraced that and said, you know, show up. And, you know, we're not, we don't directly refute it now, but we're, we try and be a bit more inclusive in terms of our, our thing. And as we were going through as, as, as our executive director and, and myself and um, uh, actually Meredith's husband, who sits on our rebranding committee, we were, we need to make sure that our branding book actually had good pictures in it that matched 
what we wanted to, to see. So when we hand that brand book to a volunteer or something, they can maybe see themselves reflected there. Um, and so it's like, it, it's very challenging to get those kinds of images, but once you have them, they're super powerful. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as we have more people riding that, that that's the best way to address the branding issue. Um, oh, yeah. I think people really fixate when they see one cyclist break the rules. And then they say, well, all cyclists do that, but they're really just, it's a biased sample. Uh, we don't seem to have that same bias against people who drive because so many people drive that we know that not one driver isn't indicative of every driver. And I, I watched a driver run three stop signs in a row on my walk with the dog this morning. Like it was just like one boom, boom, boom. One of them was the trail stop sign. And I was like, okay, that's people run. I mean, people, people run stop signs regardless of mm -hmm. how they're traveling in what mode. I mean, that to my mind, it, it's, things get attached to certain groups, but the reality is people break the law about the same level, um, regardless of how they're traveling. Um, well, I mean, I actually could, I would argue that cyclists probably break the law less in some ways because the risks are so much higher. Yeah. I mean, I'm a super cautious rider because I know that if there's an, an altercation with a vehicle, I'm not going to be the one that walks away. There's also um, a, a kind of linguistic shift that I think we could help to perpetuate where we, we continue to refer to people as cyclists, pedestrians, drivers. And I think we're all on the same page uh, here. And, and Corey, you and I have had this conversation where, you know, we're people, we're people who walk, we're people who ride, we're people who drive. But, you know, when you look at the way that infrastructure is laid out, it's meant to serve all of those purposes. Right. It's been almost exclusively designed for people who drive. And we're now in a place of trying to reorganize those traveling spaces so that it also takes into account people who ride, people who walk, people who roll, uh, in addition to, to people who, who drive. So it, it's one thing to maybe help change that that dialogue a little bit with folks that it helps to humanize the the people who are choosing to travel rather than thinking of them as the nuisance users of the road that are driving me out of the lane I want to travel in yeah there's been some good work in the bike advocacy community across North America and the world about changing language I mean one of them is one you mentioned this people first language um, the other one is how we how we name things I mean, a few years ago, even when Pandora went to first went to council in 2015, it was the Pandora cycle track. Mm. Um, and now it's the Pandora protected bike lane because there was some work done on language. It's like cycle track implies, you know, fast. I, I actually had, a, I was, when that originally came to council, I was actually working for the CRD and I asked my coworker who was working on a totally different project, not a bike rider at all. I'm like, what does the word cycle track mean to you? And he described a velodrome. And I said, what does the word protected bike lane mean to you? And he said, that sounds like something where you put you know, concrete in. So, so he's been sort of peripherally engaged because he happened to be working in regional planning with people who rode bikes. But to him, even then, like the immediate conjured thing about the language was super important. Um, you know, and back to the cyclist thing, I don't know if you saw the study a few last year where they had to invent a whole new cockroach-based scale for people when talking about cyclists, I don't know if you saw that study, it was, so basically they asked people, what are your opinion of um, cyclists? And what they found was that people weren't actually, their opinions were so low that they, that there's, a, there's a human, there's like a human to ape scale that they use, psychologists use to basically, you know, how human is this person? They had to invent a whole new scale below that with cockroaches, because that was the, like, you know, it's not everybody, but the challenge is, is that that's a, an angry minority. And yeah. it's also a very scary angry minority. If, so if you're de dehumanizing people is what leads to a lot of problems. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of really good, you know, so I don't want to oversell it. I mean, one of the key things is if you're on a bike, the instant you get off a bike, you're whatever you are, right? So the, the, there's a real key thing, like equity seeking groups who are people, you know, people of color, people with disabilities, they can't get off their bike and get out of that situation. Um, and that's really crucial uh, for, for us 
to realize the limitations of that, but also recognize that there's some people on the road who literally want to kill us um, and are okay with that and don't think we're human. <laughs> um, so, yeah. <laughs> I, I heard a funny a story that, you know, may or may not be true, but a, a guy who had a scary commute in, in into work every day and people would always just pass too close, too close. So he decided to try different po posters on his back to try and get people to pass differently. And so he tried things like riding for the environment or I have kids or all whatever these things are. And the most effective one that got the sort of like honks of support was my wife got the car or my ex-wife got the car. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the who, class, who passes too closely studies are, are quite, I mean, there's a guy in, in the UK called Walker who did a bunch of research into this. And it's, and I just saw another one out of Australia, they instrumented a bike. And it really hammers home why infrastructure is so is it really is the biggest slice of the pie when it comes to influencing people biking because the challenge is is that it doesn't matter if you get if you educate 99.9%, that's one driver out of a thousand. And if you get passed by 150 cars in your commute, that means every 10 days you're gonna have an unsafe pass. I mean, when I lived on Richardson. I figured it was about 1% of cars would pass me unsafely, which meant that about every three to four days, I would have an unsafe pass. So when that means when you drop the number of cars down from you know, 4,000 a day to 500 a day, that means you're getting passed by, you know, on a 10 minute commute, you're gonna get passed by maybe 10 cars. That means if you've one in a thousand or one in a hundred, that means you're looking at, you know, so you're just decreasing the odds of dealing with that. And then you're on, you know, a protected bike lane and you're interacting with nobody essentially, except at the intersections, um, uh, you know, and that's why we push so hard for the signals on Pandora because there's good research now out of New York that basically when you start seeing large numbers of cars turning right, you start getting problems and Montreal has seen the same thing. Um, so it's, it, you know, we, we really do need to, you know, education is fantastic. Education helps, they're all, all three of them really build on each other. And, and uh, you know, we saw this with Bike to Work Week with the numbers of people going to Bike to Work Week. It wasn't really until we added the new infrastructure that the numbers started to really, really rise. And, you know, 2019, we had 10,000 people. Who knows how big 2020 would have been um, with, without COVID. It would, my guess is we might have started beating Metro Vancouver again because we used to uh, in terms of numbers and we'll, we'll get there. The, uh, by you know, 2022, 2023, when large numbers of people have returned to work, we're going to have huge numbers. Yeah. Um, so uh, looking at those um, really significant achievements and things to celebrate, it kind of brings me to the, the last thing I wanted to ask each of you. And that's what does success look like when you've had a chance to hang it up and you're gonna you know, turn over the, the chairs roll to somebody else? What do you want to reflect on as being a significant outcome, something you're proud of for, for Capital Bike? And Meredith, why don't, we, why don't we start with you? So my role in Capital Bike is, is internal for the most part. And when I hang up my hat as chair, I'd like to see um, a really stable board with a diverse membership that reflects the diversity of Victoria that is working on build, continuing to build the organization so that we're, we're expanding our membership and we're active across the region, especially with local advocacy groups and not just advocacy in the sense of asking for better infrastructure but also maybe planning local events i think that would be really great one of the best in toronto is the cupcake ride where it just takes place in little portugal and they go and try all the cupcakes Ooh. and yeah it's fantastic right Lovely. and that's the kind of thing that a local group is the best placed to organize so that's that's what i would like to see let me know when that cupcake ride happens. I will definitely be there for that. <laughs> Corey, what about you? What does uh, success look like? Well, I guess, I mean, I can talk success because I've, I've worn two hats. So, you know, the first hat, the one I've already managed to pass on to, well, Meredith, 
um, is that of the presidency. Um, I was president of Greater Victoria by George Society before it merged. I was president of the Merge Society up until last month. Um, and so to me, I, to, I've already succeeded essentially. Um, you know, the, the key thing you need to do is get your job done and find someone else to replace you. And so I got my job done and I found someone else to replace me. So I'm very happy that, you know, Meredith and Ed have taken on the co-chair role um, and really provide the time and the, and the expertise that I just wasn't able to uh, as president, you know, I, uh, you know, when I became president of Bike to Work, it was like, okay, well, I'll take it on, but recognize that I, I have a job and I have, I have challenges, you know, I have a life. Um, I like to live it. I like to sleep occasionally. Um, and then as an advocate, your job as an advocate is to make yourself irrelevant is at the end of the day, if you're not needed anymore, you've, you've succeeded, you know, and it's amazing. You know, there's always the next challenge to take on, but in many ways, we've had a huge amount of success in making ourselves irrelevant in certain things. You know, when the last round of bike ways went to council, we didn't even put out a call to action because we didn't need to. It was going to, it was going to cruise the council. No, they were going to talk about, they were going to approve Fort Street. They approved the Fernwood and Oakland's connector. So we've made ourselves irrelevant from that perspective, which is fantastic, which means we can focus on what the next thing, you know, when, um, you know, when we, you know, with speed limit stuff, we pushed Sanich, we succeeded. And, you know, now those conversations outside of Sanich's, Glamaldo Bay, et cetera, were, um, were, you know, much easier. Like, so it's, it's little incremental pieces, you know, it's, you know, and even at the ministry, which is probably the single hardest place that we currently advocate to, except maybe the city of Langford, um, we're getting there. It's the ministry's, you know, slowly moving in that direction. It's taking a heck of a long time and way longer than it needs to, but they're, they're starting to recognize that this continuous portion. I mean, the PST is a good example. The, the, as of yesterday, as of, as of Wednesday, the province removed the PST from, um, uh, from e-bikes, which has been an advocacy push from us, from the BC Cycling Coalition, from Hub, and from many, many others for, for years. Um, you know, and hopefully that'll beget the next win, you know? So each win begets the next one and embedding the culture in, especially in staff's perspective, the staff are the ones that show up and, and are there every single day. Um, and when the staff are pushing for it, you don't need to, then you've won essentially. Um, and we're getting there. It's, it's amazing. Um, Just, I wanted to, one last thing is that we're in a really fortunate position to be here in Victoria. If you'd asked me that question in Toronto when I was working there, my victory would have been no more dead cyclists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, whereas here yeah. there there is the occasional tragedy and which is absolutely something we should continue to work on but in in toronto we cycle toronto worked to establish the friends and families for safe streets which was a support group and advocacy group for people who had lost loved ones due to road violence hmm. and we're yeah. extremely lucky that it's not to that level here and so what when we can describe what success looks like we can describe a vibrant cycling culture that focuses on you know going for cupcakes as opposed to limiting fatalities yeah as opposed to installing ghost bikes i mean we're yeah you know and it, you know you look at the two most recent fatalities eileen evans on um on uh Fisgard and government in 2016 and then the the woman who was unfortunately killed on, on the gorge road last fall you know both of them are already slated to be uh upgraded with protected bike lanes um so you know government should go to construction probably later this year gorge will go to consultation something somewhat similar so it's you know i i really i really feel for um the other advocates who are in a, in a tough spot and i was actually in a in a call with a number of people mostly u.s advocates a couple of months ago and we were talking about what what is the, the u.s the state response to um you know, to road safety for vulnerable users. And, you know, there was a lot of discussion amongst, it was primarily sort of pedestrian cycling um, coordinators or staff from those. And, you know, I said, one of the key things for me is I live in a fairly safe region. 
So what I would like to know is what makes my region safer than yours? And how can I share what I, what's succeeding here with you? Is that culture? Is that vehicle size? Is that road size? So let's go out and quantify the places that are succeeding. And then let's go and take them to places that aren't. And to a certain extent, we do have that in the region. We're quantifying the success that Victoria is succeeding at. Um, and we're seeing Victoria's success is forcing the other municipalities to go. So, and of course that leads us to the giant A word um, and the five hours of discussion. That's yeah, that that's a different <laughs> podcast. <laughs> oh, that A word. Yeah. That oh, yeah. oh, totally different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, we should probably wrap things there. I, um, <laughs> Meredith James is the co-chair of the newly formed or newly branded Capital Bike. Corey Berger is the Policy and Infrastructure Chair of Capital Bike. Thank you both so much for taking the time to come and chat today. Um, and thank you so much for your, your time, your effort, your enthusiasm, your ongoing efforts to make life a little bit better for those who get on a bike and for making things a little more desirable for folks who maybe want to give it a try. Um, I think your the product of your efforts are, are obvious, and uh, I'm hopeful that we're going to see so many more successes coming from, from the new group. Thanks very much, Dean, and thanks very much for being part of our launch on Wednesday. It was uh, it's fantastic. I know, um, you know, with you, with the new Better Mobility Sandwich, it's good to have always good to have more advocates at the table to, to, to keep pushing, uh, especially in a place as big as Saanich, so. Thanks, Dean. Thank you. Well, I, I find myself in good company, so I, <laughs> I'm grateful. Thank you both. This has been another episode of Amazing Places. I'm Dean Murdoch. Thanks for listening. <laughs>